Hello again and welcome back. We're going to look at the subject of covenants in this study and the next two studies. It's a big subject and all I hope to do in this first one is give you a general introduction to what a covenants are in the Bible and I want to narrow it specifically this time to the Abrahamic covenant which is found in Genesis 12, 13, and 15. Uh, next time we will look at the Old Covenant, which is the Mosaic Covenant, and then in the final study we're going to look at the New Covenant, and hopefully we're going to glean something not just for your head, but for your heart. Before we begin, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, and Lord, there's so much depth to it that we at times shake for it. Often we feel like that little child is just dipping his toe into the shore, and in front of us are the vast depths that we have never and will probably never ever know. Yet, Father, we thank you that you have told us through your Son, our Lord Jesus, that the Holy Spirit would come and would lead us into all truth. We claim that now and ask for minds that, as Paul prayed for us, would be open and enlightened to receive your truth. Not just our minds open, but our hearts open, Lord. We long for a divine encounter. We long to meet God. So Lord, hear us, and I commit myself to you now, Lord. I ask for your grace and your help now in presenting this teaching. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, first of all, there's a lot of experts and a lot of seminaries on the subject of covenants, so I'm not going to bore you with a lot of not needed information. I'm going to just cover the main points. Now, first, there are eight main covenants in the Bible, and very simply, a covenant is just an agreement or you could or contract. It's kind of crude to call it that, but that's basically what it is. Now, there are eight of them in the Bible, and they start in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 2, we have what is called the Edenic covenant related to the Garden of Eden. Uh, that's how, you know, when God told man to populate the earth, be fruitful and multiply, he gave man dominion, basically made him the manager over creation, the man named the animals, and, and so on. But man failed on his side of the agreement when he disobeyed God in Eden with the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the consequence of breaking that Edenic covenant was that death came upon all creation. Um, so man failed to keep his side of, of the agreement, so God made another covenant with man. We know it as the, uh, the Adamic covenant in Genesis chapter 3. In the Adamic covenant, Satan, the cause of a great deal of the trouble in the universe, is cursed. Serpent was cursed to crawl upon the ground, and with the curse of Satan, a Savior is promised, and that's the first promise of, of the Messiah in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Adam is told that he must work the ground to, to bear fruit from it and to live off of it, and he's told when he dies as a consequence of sin, he would return to it as dust. But humanity got so corrupt after the Adamic covenant that God repented. That's what the Bible says in Genesis 6, 6. He repented that he had made man, and he sent a flood to destroy every living, living creature except Noah and Noah's family. After the flood, Noah and his family settled on the new earth, 
so to speak. And the Noahic or N-O-A-H-I-C covenant was, was formed between God and Noah and mankind in general, and that's in Genesis chapter 9. That covenant is essentially the Adamic covenant with a few differences, uh, the need for human government to, to uh, subdue sin and the need for man himself to get a reign on, on society. Also, within that covenant with Noah was God's promise that he would never judge the world again with a flood. And the sign and symbol of, of that covenant was the rainbow in the sky, and we still see that today. So those are the first three covenants. Edenic covenant in Eden, the Adamic covenant with Adam, and the Noahic covenant with Noah. Now, those first three of the eight covenants of the Bible are what we know as universal covenants. That means they are made between God and the whole of mankind, and that's important. Because the next kind of covenant that God makes is called theocratic covenants. Theocratic simply means the rule of God. Not only is man charged with getting a grip on society, but God now intends to extend his influence upon mankind. Theocratic covenants pertain to the rule of God on the earth. The first one that we're going to look at a little bit later is the Abrahamic covenant made with Abraham. The next one that we're going to look at next time is the Mosaic covenant that God made with Moses on Mount Sinai. Then there's what has been known as the Palestinian covenant, or better, a better name for the Palestinian covenant would be the land covenant where God's people are promised the land of Canaan. Then there is the Davidic covenant, which relates to the monarchy in Jerusalem. And then over in Jeremiah, there's the new covenant. And when we're going to look at looking at some of those covenants, uh, main, we're going to be looking at the Mosaic covenant next time. And in the third uh, study, we're going to look at the new covenant. Uh, all the theocratic covenants, and it's very important that you get this point. Every single one of them was made with the nation of Israel. Uh, before we go any further, I want to talk a little bit about studying your Bible. When you're reading your, your, your Bible and trying to interpret what's going on, you first have to ascertain who is being spoken to, particularly when it is God doing the speaking. Who's God talking to? and most especially when it has to do with promises that God is making when he makes a covenant. It's vital to understand who the two participants are. Now we can always be assured that God is one of them, but who is the other party? Who is being addressed? Uh, who are the participants again? Listen carefully as I repeat this. There are eight covenants in the Old Testament. Five of the eight were made with Israel. The other three were made with all of mankind. The understanding of covenants in the Bible is vital. First of all, they give us these eight covenants give us a framework for understanding the entire message of Scripture. You could say that the story of Scripture is divided into covenants. Now, Paul told Timothy to rightly divide the word of truth, and in a sense, covenants are a way of doing that. But specifically, the covenants also give us a key to interpreting many disputed prophetic scriptures. There's a great deal of confusion when we come to 
prophetic scripture as to who these passages apply to. When we understand the covenants correctly, we have a key to opening up many prophetic scriptures. But only, not only is there a general application and a specific application in relation to prophetic scripture, there's also a personal application of covenant truth because the doctrine of covenant reveals something intrinsic to the character of God, and that is his faithfulness, his utter and complete faithfulness to his promises. And there's a reason why this is the most important aspect of covenants, because it's a revelation of the heart of God. I believe that Genesis all the way through to the book of Revelation, the whole Bible, is a revelation of the heart of God. And often the trouble with us in figuring out what the Bible's trying to tell us is that we miss the wood because we keep looking at the trees. We get so taken up with the doctrines and the scripture and putting the pieces of the jigsaw together that we miss the fact that it's just is lying there beyond the sacred page. All truth and all doctrine is meant to lead us to God and help us to get to know our God more. If we get to know our Bible more, and we get to know covenant more, and we don't get to know God more, then basically we've wasted all of our time. And we're going to look at covenants in more detail. Like I said, there are two, and there are two types of covenants in, in these eight. There are conditional covenants, and there are unconditional covenants. I'm going to explain those. The conditional covenant can be also called a bilateral covenant. That means there's a responsibility on the two parties in the covenant to do something so that the covenant is fulfilled bilaterally. In the Bible, that is characterized by a formula where God proposes to man, if you will, then I will. You know, if you, if you fulfill your side of the bargain, I God will fulfill my side of the bargain. The blessing is a conditional covenant and it's secured by obedience because before God will meet his conditions, man must first meet his. Now, two out of the eight covenants of the Bible are conditional. The Edenic covenant that man broke and sin came upon all the earth and we all still live with the consequences of, of that. And the other one is the one we're going to look at next time, which is the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant of the law, sometimes known as the Old Covenant. Israel broke it, and the Jews and the entire world now live with the consequences of, that, of it being broken. An unconditional covenant is unilateral, which means there's only one party in agreement with any responsibility to fulfill the covenant. As far as God's concerned, an unconditional unilateral covenant is a sovereign act of God that is not that is characterized not by the formula if you will and I will, but it's characterized with the formula I will. Blessings are secured on man's part, not by obedience like the conditional covenant, but by the grace of God alone. God is God is fulfilling his side and it's only his side that needs to be fulfilled. Now there may be conditions that God requests that one 
fulfill out of simple gratitude for what God is doing for them, but they are not themselves the basis of God fulfilling his promise. The basis of God fulfilling his promise is pure grace. We have the Adamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Land covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the New covenant are unconditional. Only one of the covenants that were made with Israel is conditional, and that's the Mosaic covenant. The others are unconditional, and that means that they will be fulfilled. And I hope I'm making this plain to you. Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum, who's a Messianic Jew, points out four things to note relating to the unconditional covenants made with Israel. One, they are literal covenants. Therefore, they must be fulfilled literally. That's not rocket science, is it? Number two, they are eternal covenants, so they're not restricted or altered by time. It doesn't matter how much time passes before these are fulfilled. They will be fulfilled because they are unconditional. Number three, they are unconditional, therefore they are not annulled or nullified because of Israel's disobedience. They are not bilateral, they are unilateral. All that matters is God's responsibility to fulfill what he has promised. They are unconditional. Israel's disobedience doesn't matter. Number four. These unconditional covenants with Israel were made with a specific people. I want to remind you of Romans chapter 9 verse 4. Paul writes, the Israelites to whom pertain adoption, the glory, the covenants, don't miss the plural there that Paul uses, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. Paul says the same in Ephesians 2, this time speaking of Gentile Christians, Christians and describing them who one time were alien from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Gentiles are strangers from the covenants. And that last one is vital because there's a strain of theology called replacement theology that basically what it does is it takes all these promises and covenants that were made by God to the nation of Israel and it applies them to the church. Many who espouse it, teach it, I greatly regard, and yet I believe that replacement theology is wrong. It's wrong because it disregards principles of sound interpretation, and it confounds biblical prophecy, so we cannot really understand clearly what Bible prophecy says. And ultimately, it makes a mockery of the whole issue of covenants, because you start to not understand who a covenant was made to and how it will be fulfilled. Now, would you go into agreement like that? I know I wouldn't, and I don't. I would hope you wouldn't either. Now, the Abrahamic covenant is one we're looking at first in this study. It's an unconditional covenant, and it's indicated by the declaration of God saying, I will. It's the first of the theocratic covenants, it's the first where God is starting to bring his rule upon earth. 
And all the other theocratic covenants evolve out of this Abrahamic covenant. It's the nucleus of all the other covenants. You could describe it like this. In this covenant is the one person is the one purpose of God for humans into which all of God's programs work and fit. And that's a big statement. At the beginning of the Bible, we have a covenant that enshrines all the purposes of God for all human beings, Jew and Gentile, regarding God's program and the works that he will do. Essentially, it explains whatever God has done in history, what he is doing now, and what he will continue to do until the consummation of all things that we read about in the book of Revelation. It's staggering, but it's here in the Abrahamic Covenant. And it's first announced in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Beginning at verse 1. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's a broad outline of what God was going to do. You have to look at it. First of all, there's a national aspect to the covenant. God says, I will make of you a great nation, and Abraham was the father of the great nation of Israel. Israel will possess one day all the promised land. There is a national promise for him to be the father of a great nation, Israel. But there's also a personal promise. God says, I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. That's a personal blessing. Now, God was going to make Abraham great. You know, the Jews are not the only nation that came from him. Other nations, including Arab states, are descended from Abraham. His descendants have been and are kings, both Jewish and non-Jewish kings. God had said personally, not just nationally, that a great nation of Israel would come from him, but personally God would make his name great. Consider this. Over half of the human race is connected to a religion, whether Jewish, Christian, or Muslim, that believes that Abraham is a most outstanding patriarch of faith. God fulfilled his personal promise as well as the national promise to Abraham through the Abrahamic covenant. And there's a universal promise here. He says, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Israel was the vehicle that God was going to use to bring Messiah and salvation. In this covenant, there are physical blessings to the Jews. There's the land, there's the Davidic kingdom, and, and so on. And just because Christ has come and the church is here, it doesn't mean those things are erased. The spiritual blessings of the Abrahamic covenant are with the Jews as well but they also pertain to the Gentiles, to the seed of Abraham. The seed, as Galatians teaches us, is singular, and those promises were made to Christ, Abraham's seed. When we are in Christ, we enjoy those spiritual blessings as the spiritual descendants of Abraham. 
Now the Abrahamic covenant is announced in chapter 12. It's later confirmed in greater detail in chapter 13. And if you're going to turn to that, uh, if you have your Bibles, this is a confirmation, and each time it's repeated, it tells us a little bit more about it. We've seen a broad outline. Now we're going to get the confirmation in uh, verse 14 of chapter 13. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. And it's confirmed again in chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your increasing, exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abram said, Look, I've given me no offspring. Instead, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, the word there is Jehovah, or Yahweh, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. So the covenant is announced in chapter 12. It's confirmed in chapters 13 and 15. And this is where it's ratified officially and legally between God and Abraham. It's ratified specifically in answer to a question that Abraham asked of God in verse 8 after he confirms his covenant again. Abraham says, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit? And God says in verse 9, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. So after the covenant is ratified in chapter 15, in chapter 17, the covenant is signified. And the covenant of Abraham is signified with a to token physical circumcision. Eight-day-old boys were to be circumcised, and this was a sign, just as the rainbow was a sign of the Noahic covenant. Circumcision, which in Hebrew means cutting, would be the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. That's going to become significant when we look at this cutting that's going on in chapter 15. Remember, the question Abraham asked in verse 8 was, Lord, how shall I know? You're giving me all these promises. They're out of this world, but how shall I know I'm going to inherit them? I want to guarantee. You need to listen carefully. 
Abraham understood that when God told him in verse 9 to take all these animals, that God was saying, Abraham, if you want to know how you can know I'm telling the truth, get a contract ready for me to sign. That's literally what's being said here. What is occurring in these verses happened in those days because contracts were made by sacrificially splitting carcasses of animals, laying them on the ground, and both parties to the contract would walk through the parts of those animal pieces, repeating to one another the terms of the contract and the agreement. You see the importance there? Abraham says, how do I know you're telling me the truth? How do I know you're going to fulfill what you've said? And God says, get a contract ready and I'll sign it. And in verse 18, we read at the end of all this that God made a covenant with Abraham. I'm not a Hebrew expert, but I do know that the word made, therefore the Lord made a covenant, actually is the Hebrew says the Lord cut a covenant. A covenant is spoken of in Hebrew as being cut. And the idea is, and this is coming from secular usage in agreements and contracts that we archaeologists have, have found from Abraham's time, that the parties in a contract by cutting the animals and walking in the midst of them were saying, May the same be done to me if I break my covenant with you. May the same be done to you if you break your covenant with me. You're going to see that again in Jeremiah chapter 34. You know, it's reassuring to, to know that Abraham had doubts. For Who of us have not had doubts from time to time? Now, doubts are different than unbelief, by the way. Abram Abraham, he had his doubts, who could blame him about God going to fulfill all, all this. He's well on the other side of pension age. God's telling him he's going to have a son. And, you know, he wants an assurance. It's unmistakably what the Lord is saying. Abraham, if you wanted an assurance, let's sign a contract, settle it once for all. And here's what the Lord is saying by by this is what we can infer from what God is saying. What he's saying is, if I do not honor my word, let me be pulled asunder, just like these animals. Now, this is a very strange statement in Psalm 138, verse 2. There it says, God has magnified his word above his name. So in the pecking order in heaven, God has put his word, what he says, what he promises, above his holy name. I don't think you could get a better illustration of that than this. God is saying, may I be pulled apart. He's putting his reputation on the line by signing a contract with Abraham. And that teaches us, and covenants teach us, that God wants to be believed. And I think if you scour this book, the Bible, from cover to cover, you're going to find, generally speaking, that all God asks of man is that man believe him. And we have it here. We have faith in verse 6 of chapter 15. Abraham believed in the Lord and God accounted it, accredited it to him for righteousness. 
What Abraham was doing was having faith in God's word on the basis of a blood sacrifice. It was a contract that God was promising he would never break. Look at the animals that God asked Abraham to, to take in verse 9 because they are all prophetic in and of themselves. Now before we look at them specifically, note the wording of how God tells him to get them. He says, bring me. I'm not going to take time to go into all of that, but this shows that this unconditional unilateral covenant and this sacrifice and this, this agreement was for God. Bring me. That's exactly the same with the sacrifice of Calvary that is enshrined here in wonderful type in the book of Genesis, and it's a Holy Spirit-inspired picture. That sacrifice ultimately and primarily was for God because it was in the heart of God to reconcile mankind to himself. And in order to do that righteously and justly, God needed a sacrifice to satisfy him. Bring me. Now three animals are, are, are named. All three of them are tame animals and not one of them needed to be captured by Abraham. They were willing servants for man's need. The heifer, the goat, and the ram. Now, that's a picture of our Lord Jesus. Mark's gospel is the gospel of the suffering servant. But, you know, the Lord Jesus had said, I've come to do the will of him who sent me. Each of these tame animals foreshadows a distinctive aspect of Christ's person and work. The heifer seems to indicate strength and energy to do the will of the Father. The goat, of course, if you know the Old Testament, is the animal of the sin offering. He was, Christ was coming to do the will of God energetically, but he was going to Calvary to die in our place and take our sins. Then there's the ram, and the ram in Levitical offerings was connected with consecration. This was a work as his life was. His death would be completely consecrated to God. And the birds, is there not a picture of the one from heaven? That's John's Gospel. Three times we read of three years repeated. And our Lord, after three years of service here on earth, life, and ministry, goes to the cross to die the sacrificial death. After Abram does what God asked him in verse 11, we read this. When the vultures came down, the carcass, when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. That implies something. Sometimes you need to read between the lines a little. What that implies is here we have Abram waiting on God. He's done what God has directly asked him, and now he's waiting. What's he waiting for? Well, you know, God said, get a contract ready and I'll sign it. It's not conjecture to say that now he had the contract ready. He's waiting for God to come down and ratify it. He's waiting for God literally to come down, take his hand, Abram's hand, and walk with him through the pieces reciting the agreement to one another. And in verse 12, it says, he waits all day. Now when the sun was going down, he waited to the very end of the day. 
Now, he waited to the very end of the day, and at that point, when his sun was going down, Scripture says, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Now, what does all that mean? Well, some believe it means because Abram is sleeping now, that he's not going to inherit the promised land in his own natural lifetime. And that may well be, but I don't know how they get that out of it, but there's a more to it than that has to be. You see the significance of sacrifice and the typology that relates to the life and death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Aren't we seeing here a representation of death? Abraham undergoes a deep sleep and we'll see in a moment or two he's, there is a resurrection. We see this further back in Genesis before there was even, even the fall of man we see Adam falls into a deep sleep. God does an operation while he's under that anesthetic and takes a rib and makes a woman. There's a picture of, of, of the new birth and new creation coming out of death and then resurrection. The message is that blessing, this covenant blessing that has been promised to God's people and to the whole earth will only be inherited through suffering. Now in verses 13 to 16, God specifically prophesies this, the suffering that the descendants of Abraham would have to bear. In verse 13, in his sleep and in his, in his horror of great darkness, God tells Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and they will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. Now he's telling him that they're going to be 400 years in Egypt and before you say it, yeah, some scriptures do say Israelites were 430 years in Egypt and that's correct, they were and we don't have a contradiction. They were under 400 years of affliction after 30 years of honor while Joseph lived. Now it's not rocket science here people. Then in verse 14, God says to Abram, And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. God's going to judge the Egyptians. That's the plague. Afterward they shall come out. And that's the Passover with great possessions. That's what Exodus 12 describes as the Israelites plundering the Egyptians as they exited a land. Verse 16 is another specific prophecy. God tells them they will go in what they will suffer, they will come out, how they will come out, and when they will come out. In verse 16 it says, In the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now if you turn to Exodus chapter 6, verse, beginning verse 16 through 20, you're going to read there that Levi, Abram's great-grandson, was the first generation of Israelites in Egypt. Then we read that Levi's son by the name of Kohath was the second generation of Israelites in Egypt. Then we read on that Amram was the third generation of Israelites in Egypt and the son of Amram and Amram and Jochebed was Moses, the fourth generation of Israelites in Egypt. That's the generation that God said would be delivered. Now, I want to ask you a question before I go on any further. Do you think God fulfills his word accurately and literally? You know, I think it's self-evident. 
In verse 16, God told him they're not going to return to Canaan until the iniquity of the Amorites was complete. And then it's the end of the dream. We know that because it says in verse 17, it came to pass when the sun went down, but Abraham, Abram is back to reality. It's important because this was not a vision that Abram is seeing from verse 17 on. This is a literal, miraculous, supernatural event. We now see this scene of blood. The sun goes down. It is dark. And behold, in the midst of this bloody scene, there appears a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between the pieces. Now, some commentators say an oven speaks of affliction. The Israelites were going to be afflicted, and that's true. Some say that a torch speaks of deliverance and guidance, and that may well be the case. But what we have here is unmistakably what is known and what we know as the Shekinah glory. And what is that? Shekinah glory is the visible manifestation of the presence of God. You see it at the burning bush where Moses turns aside to see the great sight. You see it in the wilderness before the tent of meeting as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And here you see the same description, darkness, smoke, and flame. And incidentally, this is the first time the Shekinah has been seen since Eden when the Shekinah glory of God barred sinful man from paradise. It says there that it was the flame of a sword. The Hebrew is Shekinah that stopped man, enter, stopped man from re-entering into Eden. Now this is of great significance because this visible manifestation of the presence of God is God walking between the pieces of these carcasses and God's walking alone all by himself. God had previously put Abram asleep to let him know that this is not our covenant, it's my covenant with you. Now he walks himself. Illustrating again, this is an unconditional unilateral covenant. In other words, it's not based on the obedience of, obedience of Abram, nor his descendants, but it's based on grace alone. Abram didn't do anything to make it, and he can't do anything to break it. In all its aspects, whether it be the land, the seed, the spiritual blessings to the church, or even Jews today, all are possible because God has promised it. And God said, I will do it, I will fulfill it through Messiah. As I was thinking about this, meditating on it, I realized there's a sense in which God walked through the bloody body of Jesus to establish his covenant. There's a sense in which God signed his covenant for all of us, Jew and Gentile alike, through the pieces of Calvary. When I thought of that, 2 Corinthians 5.19 came to me. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. That's mighty. Verse 18, look at what God says. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. 
if you go back to chapter 13, verse 5, you're going to read there, at least some version, versions read, that God, as he is affirming again before it's ratified, he's affirming, I will make this covenant with Abram. Now he's saying, I have made this covenant with Abram. He's basically saying, it's done. It's finished. And on what basis? On the basis of God's word, God's promise, and the shedding of blood. And that's how we are saved. The word and the blood. Now, I want to apply this as I start to close. The only thing God requires of man and has ever required of man is for man to believe him. I don't think I'm being simplistic simplistic when I say that. He wants to believe he wants us to believe him prophetically. And I know that's an area of controversy with with some people. And you might not think it matters whether you believe these covenants are for the church or are for Israel or for whatever. You know, a Jew on one occasion was debating with a Christian over Luke chapter one, verses thirty two and thirty three. That's where the angel announced to Mary, he, he's talking about the Lord Jesus, will be great and will be called the son of the highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, the angel speaking of the Davidic kingdom and how Christ would sit on the throne of Israel. So the, the, the Jew asked the Christian, how do you understand that scripture? And the Christian said, well, it's figurative language describing Christ's spiritual reign over the church. Then you don't take it literally, asked the Jew. And the Christian replied, certainly not. The Jew then made a further remark. Then why do you expect me to take literally what is said just before, when it says that the son of David shall be born of a virgin? You take that literally, that he would be born of a virgin? Surely, said the Christian, I take it literally. The Jew answered, well, why do you accept verse 31 of Luke 1 as literal, but explain verse 32 and verse 33 as figurative? Because, answered the Christian, verse 31 has become a fact. Jesus was so born. Ah, oh, said the Jew, I see. You believe the scriptures when you see them fulfilled. I believe them because they are the word of God. And that is the important point for you guys. It's important that we believe God prophetically. It's not all important, but it is important. But what is all important is that we believe God personally. The just shall live by his or her faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You know, there's an elderly woman who used to like to include a particular verse in her testimony, and it was, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Now, her pastor, who knew her delight, was in the faithfulness of God in that one verse, one day pointed out to her that the original Greek meaning could literally be translated I'll never, no, never leave thee nor forsake thee. Oh, when the 
when the lady showed no surprise, the pastor asked, Well, doesn't it make you feel better to know that God makes it doubly sure that he won't forsake you? Oh, no, she said. I know God says it twice, but that was so some of you preachers could understand it. Once is enough for me. Let me ask you this. Do you believe God personally? Jesus said we could build our life on the rock of what he said, and those storms come, though they be judgment storms, though this earth, as John says, and the things of this earth pass away. He who does the will of God abides forever. You see, the problem is not just that some of us have spiritualized God's promises to Israel and so on, but most of us have grown, if the truth be told, over familiar with his promises to us. Would I be wrong in saying that we have even grown tired of them and have lost our wonder of all his promises? You know, Philip Yancey writes that he remembered his first visit to Old Faithful in Yellowstone National Park. He said that rings of Japanese and German tourists surrounded the geyser, their video cameras trained like weapons on this famous hole in the ground. And he says there's a large digital clock that stands beside the spot. And it's predicting 24 minutes until the next eruption. And Mr. Gancy says that his, his wife and he passed a countdown in the dining room of the Old Faithful Inn that overlooks the geyser. And then when the digital clock reached one minute, he says, we, along with every other diner, rushed to the window to see the big wet event. But I noticed immediately as if on signal a crew of waiters and waitresses descended on the table to refill water glasses and clear away dirty dishes. When the geyser went off, we tourists oohed and awed and clicked cameras. A few spontaneously applauded. But glancing back over my shoulder, I saw not a single waiter, not even those who had finished their chores, looking out the huge window. And any comments, Oath Faithful, grown entirely too familiar, had lost its power to impress. Old Faithful, grown entirely too familiar, had lost its power to impress. Do you know God is still true to his word? As the old Puritan said, tarry at the promise and God will meet you there. He always returns by way of his promises. Let's pray. Father, we know a little bit more of what it means for you to have set your word above your name. You have chosen in your sovereignty to put your reputation on the line because you always honor your word. You have chosen to give us an assurance that we can grasp and understand. Lord, we thank you for the Lord Jesus who was torn at Calvary. We thank you that you walked between the pieces of the slain lamb to a world that has its back towards you. Lord, we thank you for the wonder of it all, and we thank you, Lord, that when we are faithless, you remain faithful, for you cannot deny yourself. Forgive us for unbelief, and Lord, help us with the faith of a little child. Simply believe what you have said. And we do believe this much, that your heart is delighted, exhilarated, and overjoyed when your children believe you. 
thank you for meeting with us, Lord. That if there should be even one listening who has never known what it is to believe upon the sacrifice of Jesus, that their sins are forgiven, may they take you at your word now and believe on the Lord Jesus and be saved. And may the fragrance of your presence go with us now. In Jesus' name we pray and ask. Amen and amen. Once again, thank you for listening. Until next time, may you walk with God. Amen.